0: On today's edition of Grape Encounters Radio, we will take you where no wine show has ever dared to go before. Here's a little taste of what's to come.
1: I don't need an excuse to eat a donut, and I probably don't need an excuse to drink a bottle of California wine. We can do that all year round.
2: But Jeff, what do you pair with a donut?
1: What do you pair with a donut? I've got a secret sommelier pairing. Yeah? Are you ready? Yeah. Coffee. Coffee.
0: <laughs> And now from our Central Coast Wine Country studio in the quaint, friendly, and historic town of Atascadero, California, it's time to enjoy an hour of the really good stuff on Grape Encounters Radio. Heck, we may even uncork a bottle or two of wine while we're at it. Here's David Wilson.
2: And it is time for your weekly grape encounter, and I think you're really going to enjoy our visit with today's very special guest for a couple of reasons. For starters, he's the co-producer of one of the very best, oh, what the heck, let's confidently call it the all-time best wine documentary. The follow-up to the movie Psalm, Psalm Into the Bottle. He himself is a master psalm, a title that is genuinely harder to get than almost anything imaginable. We're talking on the level of brain surgeon. His name is Jeff Kruth, and he comes to us from one of my very favorite wine country locales, Petaluma, California, in Sonoma County. A great spot to utilize the amazing skills that come with being a master psalm. And Jeff will share plenty of that knowledge with us and a lot more. Hey, Jeff, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
2: You know, it's funny, I didn't immediately connect you with the movie Psalm into the bottle until fairly recently, but was certainly familiar with you as a master Psalm. Holy smoke, what a must-see film this is for wine lovers.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy with the way the, the film t- turned out. And, and I met Jason when he started the project of Psalm with the, making the first film, and uh, kind of had this idea of what if we made a movie that was about wine. And the first film really was not about wine. Wine's the backdrop. It's really about four guys and their goals. And uh, we want to see well what happens if we made a film where wine becomes the subject, and so the idea was to tell ten different stories about wine, and uh, it's it's people have Netflix. It's it's available now on Netflix, and um, you can uh, it's easy to find now. Well,
2: it's so incredibly well made, but also very informative, and you know I was a big fan of the movie Som which, you know, really, I think, gives people a, a, a really excellent idea of what it takes to become a master song. And and I think anybody that has seen the movie, you know, probably <laughs> would probably give up the idea of wanting to become one. But, you know, Into the Bottle such an interesting movie because it works for both the wine geek as well as the everyday wine drinker. You just come away from that film with the best possible impression of what it takes to make fine wine. I think there's no better film that's ever been made.
1: Yeah, part of the idea was really to tell 10 stories that stand up on their own as interesting stories, uh, regardless of whether you were obsessed about wine or not, and that you can watch each story and learn something that relates to wine. And, right. and so, obviously, if you're fascinated by wine, you're going to get even that much more out of the movie, but I think just even if you like history or documentaries, I think it's there are 10 really interesting stories.
2: It, it works really well on two different levels, I think. How did you decide on the 10 stories that were in the film?
1: Well, you you know, the film was, um, I, I, should, I, should, I really should let Jason answer this question, but I can tell you that the film was never designed originally to have 10 stories per se. They evolved. And so we were traveling around the world filming with different winemakers, and we were also doing these educational films that we do on the Guild Psalm website. They're free for anybody to watch. These 10-minute documentaries on different wine regions, and we were filming them, and everywhere we were, we'd say, hey, can you open us a special bottle of wine, an old bottle of wine, some bottle that means something to open up and, and let's talk. And so the stories evolved out of that. And so when the movie was being conceptualized, it didn't start with, let's tell 10 stories about wine. It really just kind of evolved to be that.
2: So how many different stories did you actually film before you whittle it down to 10?
1: You know, we didn't even know because a lot of times these things are interconnected. So, you know, maybe the the, the story may be about an individual person, but it might be about a topic like the, the relationship of wine and food is a topic. And that becomes a story. But really, there's many different interviews that are tying into that. So um, some of them are become individual stories about one person or a family or winery. And some of them are more about a, a topic and have multiple perspectives. So really, there was just a ton of interviews, and, and great information, and traveling all over the world, and then it got basically weaved into ten stories.
2: So, what a great way to make a film, which you know is not traditionally the way that you would make a movie, uh, to actually go out there and you know get all the information you possibly can, and you know all these great interviews and then whittle it down to the best of the best that's not Well the
1: director that, would tell you it's an absolutely horrible way to make well, a movie. Yeah, I guess <laughs> from a financial or from a uh, from from any that point of view. but it but the final result was great and well, uh, it really uh, we're we're lucky to have what we have in that film
2: Well you know when we uh, pre-produce things here on Grape Encounters my producer just absolutely goes ballistic when we record too much audio and then we've got to you know kind of cut it down cuz it is a very Very hard way to make a radio show as well, but not nearly as difficult as film. Uh, Let's talk about Guildsom for a second because that's your baby. And first of all, a really, really nicely done website, which, as I understand, is based on your education which was not about wine.
1: Well, yeah, actually, my background was in computer science. I was in the software business before I was ever in the wine business, so my degree was in software engineering in school. Um, But the idea was really to link wine professionals all around the world and to provide them with all kinds of great educational content. And so we provide three different pieces of content just for the general public, uh, feature articles, podcasts, and videos. And those are available for anybody to see, uh, whether they're a member or not, just on the website on Giltzong. And then um, we provide a lot, more specific content for members and we always aim that at uh, professionals so we have things you can print out to train your staff on a particular topic you want to train your staff on the wines of the napa valley we have something you can print out to train your staff but then we'll have uh study guides which go into much more detail and then we do expanded guides which are really really in-depth like 70 80 page research reports on a single topic so a lot of the the content can um can can definitely get a bit more complicated and, and has a professional focus but Uh, We also make certain content uh, available to anybody that that wants to um, uh, just get it off the website for free.
2: So how does a guy who's majoring in computer science and music wind up getting into wine and you know obviously to become a master psalm you have to have a very obsessive personality I mean there's just no way around it because to become no one's
1: ever accused me of that before yeah, no, no. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> but, I mean seri- I mean seriously <laughs> uh, of, of course. the number of master psalms in the entire world is less than 300 Right?
1: Yeah, two, thir- 230 people have ever uh, earned the, the title. The first exam was in 1969 in London, and since then we've had 230 people that have earned the designation. And, yeah, no, it's definitely something that you need to be kind of ups- obsessive about. But, you know, I was in college studying wine and studying music, and um, I, I in—I went to Sonoma State in the wine country. Yeah. And um, the one thing I found out that was free to do on the weekends was go wine tasting. And, you know, I didn't have any money in college, and well, movies cost money, but it, wine was excuse, free. Excuse so, me, well, that's it, what I did. It
2: used to be free. It's not free anymore.
1: Yeah, it was a long time ago. I'm getting old.
2: Yeah, okay. So you were going out wine tasting, and it just resonated with you?
1: That's where it started.
2: So, But you, you were studying music as well, and I have often said on this show that there's a really, really strong connection between music and wine. And, you know, we've seen some pretty interesting studies on the topic, too, and that relationship is not accidental and so do you think that your interest in music in particular might equate into your interest in wine?
1: Yeah, I generally like aesthetics. You know, I like photography as a hobby. Um, I like film. I like music. Uh, I like wine. I like cooking. And to me, they're all elements of aesthetics and, and just things that you enjoy in life for, for whatever reason. And so I think they all kind of tie together from that level and you can take them you can take them at whatever level you want to and you can just have some music on in the background or you can become obsessed by it and, and learn the intricacies of it. And the same thing is, is true for wine and you don't have to know everything in the world about wine to enjoy a glass of wine. You can just turn on the radio or you can just pour yourself a glass of wine and you know at the end of the day that, that kind of enjoyment is, is uh, can be just as important as the kind of enjoyment you get from Something your whole life.
2: Well, we have a lot to talk about. We're going to get into the levels of wine enjoyment in just a second. I also want to talk to you about the topic of varietal correctness, which, and Sarah Schneider from Sunset Magazine and I talked about this a little bit last week, but I, I wanted to get into it more with you. And then also we need to talk about California Wine Month, which is a big
1: deal. Going on yes, in sept- September, It's just coming up September as the beginning of California Wine Month, so a uh, good, good excuse to drink California wine for a month.
2: Yeah, definitely. We're talking to Jeff Kruth. He is the president of GuildSom.com. And, you know, if you're sitting in front of a computer right now while you're listening to this, uh, definitely want to just check that out. It's G-U-I-L-D-S-O-M-M. .com. And, of course, I failed to mention also the co-producer of Som Into the Bottle. Really the best, I'm telling you, the best wine documentary of all time, period. now Not to say there's been a lot of documentaries on wine, but it's the best one by far. If there were a thousand of them, it'd still be the best. So, uh, Jeff, stick with us for a second, right? And we'll get right back to it.
1: Look forward to talking more.
2: Okay, we'll be back with more Grape Encounters. My special guest, Jeff Kruth, Master Som from
0: GuildSomme.com when we return. When wine lovers aren't talking about wine, it usually means they're asleep. Your grape encounter with David Wilson will continue right after this.
2: For years, I've been dying to get a truly exceptional wine refrigerator to keep my liquid assets safe from the scorching summer heat that can turn awesome wine into teardrops. Heat is the number one enemy of fine wine, and collectors will tell you that a wine cellar is absolutely essential. Well, that's just not true. For a tiny fraction of the cost to build even a modest cellar in a converted closet, you can own a wine refrigeration unit so exceptional and so beautiful that you'll want to show it off to absolutely everyone. My unit is truly the best there is. It's from King's Bottle, the experts in wine preservation and cooling. Kings Bottle has wine refrigerators for every need. They're gorgeous to look at and priced lower than you would ever imagine. Want to see why I'm so excited? Click the Kings Bottle link at grapeencounters.com. Kings Bottle wine refrigerators are so cool. See them at grapeencounters.com. Opportunity is knocking in a big way for wine, beer, and spirit industry professionals as well as serious enthusiasts. SOMCON 2016 is coming to the Marriott Marquis San Diego Marina, November 16th through the 19th. SomCon brings together some of the greatest thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and artisans to discuss, develop, and lead the conversation on the business of wine. Attendees learn and taste their way through keynote sessions and educational classes, complete with a trade-only tasting and expo. Tapping into the enormous experience of master sommeliers, masters of wine, CSWs, and other pros, this unique assembly of rising stars and established professionals offers aficionados four days filled with invaluable networking, education, roundtable discussions, and serious elbow rubbing. For more information about SOMCON, visit SOMCONUSA.com.
0: And now, Grape Encounters with David Wilson continues.
3: Stop, stop them grapes. And make that wine.
1: Put it in a bottle, boys. And ship it all down.
2: All right. Back with Grape Encounters Radio. You know, I have taken on a lot of challenges in my life. There is one that I I hope never to become so obsessed to take on, and that is to become a Master Psalm. I I can't really can't think of anything that is more difficult than doing that. Maybe brain surgery, but being a Master Psalm isn't too far behind that. I've got on the line today Jeff Kruth. He's the president of GuildSom.com. A very interesting educational site. You can take advantage of a lot of the information that's on the site, absolutely for free. Jeff is also the co-producer of my favorite documentary in the wine world, "Some Into the Bottle." But Jeff also is with us today on loan from the Wine Institute because it is California Wine Month, and that's a pretty big deal. And Jeff, welcome back to the show. California Wine Month is a massive event now, right?
1: Yeah, you know, one of the things I think we all associate American wine with. California wine for good reason. It's the largest producing state by far of wine in the United States. But I think there's 58 counties in California and 49 of them make wine. Yeah, isn't that amazing? It is. And, you know, when you think of Napa Valley, which is, you know, certainly one of the most premier wine regions in California, but Napa Valley accounts for about 4% of the production of California wine. And one of the things that is so amazing about California and growing wine here is there's so much opportunity to find unique expressions of grapes that grow in different conditions, you know, all across California. You know, sometimes people from outside of the United States in Europe that, you know, have their own wine regions and don't know California wine as well, they kind of think of sometimes California in this sort of monolithic sense of, you know, it's like Napa. But really, you know, the diversity in the climates and the soils and the aspects and the weather pattern and the culture of the different areas is really a lot more complicated than that. And I think that's one of the fun things about California is all of the different places there are to explore.
2: You know, in the course of the almost eight years that we've been doing this show, you know, from time to time people people will say to me, you know, you don't give enough love to the other wine regions in the country. And and of course, we cover the world, but I don't know that people fully appreciate unless you come to California just how ginormous the wine industry here is. I think we're talking about, you know, 90% of the domestically produced wine that's consumed in the states. Maybe it's 95% coming from California. But then, you know, California is a huge state. I mean, it's a lot of real estate. And when you go to you start in some place like Santa Barbara and you start driving north, you're literally in wine country almost contiguously for hundreds of miles. It's a lot of real estate.
1: Yeah, if you think between the south coast, the central coast, Appalachians, the north coast is what we typically think of like Sonoma, Napa, Mendocino, but even, you know, areas like the Sierra foothills and some of the areas towards Sacramento and south and some of the higher elevation, you think of like gold country, and you get entirely different grapes that grow well there on some of the, you know, higher elevation. I live in Petaluma. We're known for the Petaluma wind gap, and we get these cooling winds that come in from the Pacific and cool our region and that's one of the important factors for defining what grapes are going to grow well you know we're in an area like the Sierra foothills it's an entirely different set of weather patterns same thing with like in Santa Barbara you know you think of Santa Barbara oh it's near LA it must be warm but you have the proximity to the coast And Santa Barbara is just a series of these east to west running valleys most of the valleys we think of run like north-south like Napa but you know in Santa Barbara they run east-west and they channel that cool air coming in off the coast so each one of these areas has their own unique situation that allows for unique styles of wine. Have
2: you ever uh, sat around with your cronies in the wine biz and pondered the notion of what would have happened if we had taken different turns in history and not really discovered the wine potential in California? Isn't that a weird thought? Well,
1: I think even if you look at the wine history itself, you know, if prohibition had never happened, the grapes that are grown in California would be completely different. And, you know, we started out with a lot of Italian. Italian varieties. And a lot of the history of what happened with Prohibition kind of changed so much of the grapes that are here. The other day, I was, uh, my wife works at, at Hansel Winery in Sonoma, and they were up there picking the Chardonnay, which is the oldest Chardonnay uh, left in California. It was planted in 1953. But at that time, there was only 100 acres of Chardonnay, I think, something wow. like that planted in California. So sometimes these grapes that we think have been here forever, and we're not necessarily here forever. And so I think there would be a lot more Italian varieties if Prohibition hadn't happened and kind of changed the course of history in California. So
2: explain for a moment how it changed things.
1: Well, basically they killed the entire industry, right? We did it ourselves. The California wine industry was booming in the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s, and people were really discovering that you could make great wine in California. And of course with Prohibition we decimated the entire industry. Some producers were able to keep their vineyards alive by selling grapes as table grapes or for sacramental wine that you could make in a small amount. But basically we put the entire wine business out of business. And it really then took, you know, into the 1940s with producers like Inglenook, and then eventually, you know, Robert Mondavi and B.V. and some of those producers in the 1960s and 1970s, you know, to really rebirth the California wine industry. And so, obviously, the history would have been totally different. You still have some of these old plantings of, you know, Zinfandel and all these other, what they call mixed black grapes. You know, half the time, they didn't know what half the grapes were in the vineyard. They were just, you know, they might have five, six, ten different grapes, you know, interplanted in a vineyard. So there's a pretty diverse history of wine in California that goes beyond just the regular stuff that we've learned to say.
2: So they just did these field blends in those days? Is that what, what happened? There was
1: a lot of that, certainly, a lot of the Italian. And you brought the culture. So if you were an Italian immigrant, or you were a Spanish immigrant, or you were a French immigrant, you brought a lot of that know-how and some of those grapes with you. So you'll see different cultures and different parts of California kind of evolve different styles. But the predominance of the French grapes, of the Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Cabernet, you know, that was a more modern phenomenon for sure. But some of those grapes just have found perfect homes if you think of Cabernet and Napa. You know, there's probably not a better place in the world to grow Cabernet. But there are so many other places in California where, you know, the right grape might be Vermentino or Nebbiolo or Barbera uh, or Zinfandel or any other of, you know, three, 4,000 different grapes you could choose.
2: So September is California Wine Month. This is a, a time where really the state opens up its doors to not just its local residents, but people from all over the world, literally, to come here and take their pick of just an enormous amount of opportunities, incentives, and events that will take place in the state. I don't know how long you've been intimately involved with California Wine Month, but it certainly seems to me that in the eight years that I've been doing this show, that this has become a really, really big to-do in the state.
1: Yeah, you know, honestly, I think it's just kind of like, uh, you know, they have like, you know, National Donut Day, right? I don't need an excuse to eat a donut. <laughs> and, and, and probably don't need an excuse to drink a bottle of California wine. We can do that all year round. But it's a nice opportunity to sit back and be thankful for, you know, what we have here in California and the you know, diversity that, that's here.
2: But, Jeff, what do you pair with a donut?
1: What do you pair with a donut? I've got a secret sommelier pairing. Yeah. Are you ready? Yeah. Coffee. <laughs>
2: You know what? I should have expected that, and you totally broadsided me on that one. (laughs) Coffee. (laughs) There's an outfit that's blending coffee and wine. Have you had that?
1: No, I'm a stodgy, skeptical person. You know what? Hey, if you're blending coffee and wine and you like it, that's great. But I'm a little too sentimental. Well,
2: I remember the old days when we'd go to college parties, and, you know, they would blend cigarettes and wine. You know, somebody would put their cigarette butt out in the half-consumed wine glass, and you'd pick it up because it was dark. That wasn't good either. But,
1: you know. I guess I'm kind of a classicist.
2: You'll drink anything uh, in those days. All right, Jeff Kruth, we're going to come back for a few more minutes. I want to jump into this topic of varietal correctness, because there's just been something that has been bugging me and bugging me for the last couple of months now. And it actually was the outgrowth of judging a wine competition and an opinion that was shared by one of the judges that I just I'm having a tough time with. I'm telling you, and I think you're the guy to set things straight.
1: Well, I'll certainly have an opinion for whatever <laughs> that's worth. Uh,
2: yeah, I'm sure I'm sure that'll be the case. Okay, we're talking to Jeff Kruth. He is the president of guildsomm.com, co-producer of the movie Somm into the Bottle, a master psalm, one of only 230 plus in the entire world, which means he knows more than all of us put together. And that's a good thing. We'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. Hi, this is David Wilson. It's California Wine Month, time to raise a glass to all things California wine. Let's face it, Grape Encounters fans are looking for any excuse to enjoy wine, And this September is the perfect time to toast the state that puts America's wines on the map. So if you're listening on the East Coast, Midwest, Southwest, or Northwest, I encourage you to join me in saluting wine month by drinking your favorite California wines at home or at your local restaurant. I'll be there enjoying it with you in spirit. If you're lucky enough to be in California this month, you can choose among 60 plus events and activities around the state. What better way to experience harvest than to take part in wine festivals, winemaking classes, winemaking dinners, VIP tastings, and tours? To learn more about these events, or just geek out on California wines, visit discovercaliforniawines.com. Yes, sirree, that's discovercaliforniawines.com. A few days ago, a listener visited our wine bar, the Grape Encounters Emporium, because he wanted to see for himself if the wines from Cardella, that I brag about all the time, are as good as I keep telling all of you. He had driven quite a long distance to check out the Cardella wines, so we were delighted to let him sample them all. When he was most of the way through the tasting, I asked him if I had oversold these wines in any way. He smiled and replied, absolutely not. not. I can't recall any winery blowing my mind with virtually every wine they make. But after watching literally hundreds of faces light up after the first sip, I can tell you without any reservation that I believe Cardella is poised to be the next great American cult winery. Extraordinary whites, incomparable reds, insanely great values. I love Cardella's wines, and you will too. Learn how to get yours online at grapeencounters.com.
3: Hello, Mr. Wilson. Welcome! Welcome to the show. Don't bother adjusting the knobs on your
4: radio. It's a special transmission.
3: A diary to your head.
0: He's back, and he's not alone. Your grape encounter continues with David Wilson and a little help from his friends.
3: No,
4: no, 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 Mr. Wilson. This isn't where you should be. Everybody's waiting
2: back with Grave Encounters Radio and happy to spend just a few more minutes with Jeff Kruth. What a privilege. Master sommelier. Did we say sommelier, Jeff? You know, I, every psalm that we have on the show, I ask them their pronunciation because there are like 500 out there.
1: Yeah, well, I, I normally say sommelier, but really it doesn't matter how you pronounce it. You know, we don't get too caught up in that. You know, It comes from the French, but then again, you know, if you go to Paris for the week, you don't tell your friends you went to Paris for the week. So, uh, exactly. you know, say it however you want.
2: Yeah, well, now we're just calling it psalm. It's so much easier, though. Okay, so I had alluded to a dilemma that I have been dealing with here for the past couple of months. You know, it's one of those things you lay in bed at night, you toss and turn and go, what is the right thing? So I'm at a wine competition, and we were going through a lot of different wines. They were, you know, s- smaller categories. And we sort of got caught up in the moment, and we had tasted a the wine. There were about five of us in the panel, and we were all going, oh, my God, this is so delicious. And then somebody kind of revisited, you know, the little sheet that has the wines on it and realized what the varietal was that we were tasting and suddenly the discussion surrounded the idea of being varietally correct. And we went from loving this wine to panning the wine. And I really, really was troubled by that. I've been troubled by it ever since because I don't know who decides what the baseline is for varietally correct. And just so people understand, you know, when we say varietally correct, you know, how close is this wine that we're tasting to what the variety is supposed to taste like? Only the problem that I have with it is who is to determine what it's supposed to taste like because I don't know if there are any varietal police out there. So I'm going to ask you to weigh in on this because when a wine is absolutely and totally delicious and it's a Cabernet Sauvignon, let's say, but it doesn't taste like your typical Napa cab, what do we do?
1: Did you ever watch those dog shows on TV? Mm, I try not to. Well, if you're ever flipping through the channels and you see a dog show on TV and, you know, say, you know, next up, the hound group, right? And they I trot out a bunch of dogs and you have an expert there who knows what a Doberman looks like and what a poodle looks like. Right. And I think the same thing is true for wine. And so, if you're looking at your Doberman and saying, hey, wait a second, why does it have a furry white tail? Dobermans don't have furry white tails. And somebody else may say, well, that's my dog and I love my dog and I like him with a furry white tail. That's, so, who are you to tell me? And so, I think it's the same thing with wine. We have standards. We have They're just like breeds and they've evolved for various reasons into particular styles of what does a Sauvignon Blanc taste like? What does a Chardonnay taste like? Or what does a Riesling taste like? And of course, there's different versions even within any of these categories. You know, you have big poodles and little poodles and there's all kinds of difference. There's dry Riesling and sweet Riesling. And so I think when you think of wine, you have to remember that as professionals in the wine business or as experts in the wine business, oftentimes we're thinking about it in terms of the standards, in terms of the last 50 or 100 bottles of Bordeaux that we drank, and how this wine matches up compared to that. But you don't have to think of it that way. And just like if you like your poodle that has short legs and would never do well in a dog show, and but that's your dog. And the same thing is true with wine. And if you like a wine and somebody says, well, that's not varietally correct, and say, well, I like it. Who cares? But at the same time, if you're a wine professional or you're a specialist you're an expert in the business, it's something that's interesting to talk about because, you know, we do have this, these standards that are part of the culture of wine.
2: Okay, but... I'm going to answer your metaphor with a metaphor. So it wasn't that long ago that most of us hated Brussels sprouts and kale, the two very maligned vegetables. And then all of a sudden, we got these very creative cooks out there, chefs out there, who found ways to work with these vegetables to create brand new interpretations of what these vegetables could be. And what was once something that kids stuffed in their socks and then flushed down the toilet became something that we all craved. And only because we found another way to look at that vegetable and cook it. And I wonder if sometimes we miss the boat where wine is concerned, because if we establish a baseline for any varietal and then we try to come as close to that baseline as possible, aren't we then just trying to focus on a certain sameness that limits the creativity of the winemaker and limits the choices of the wine drinker? And if a wine didn't score well, it got lower points because it wasn't wasn't, quote, varietally correct, then aren't we doing a disservice to both the winemaker and the consumer?
1: It's all about what you like. I have strong opinions about wine, but it's a subjective world, and it's they're just my opinions. And to me, wine is part of a culture. So with anything, with food, you have, you have, you have different competing things. You have culture, and you have the drive for creativity and the drive for newness. And obviously, both of these are important to coexist. And, you know, when I go out to restaurants, I tend to like traditional food. I like food that my grandparents would have recognized as food. And somebody else may say, no, you know what, I'm bored of that. I want, I want smoke coming off the plate and I want there to be lights coming down from the ceiling and things to be, I don't know, whatever crazy modern cuisine you like. And that's fine. And If you like the creative side of wine and you want to blend Pinot Noir and Cabernet and Sauvignon Blanc together and you think that tastes good, you're not wrong. But there's a reason that these styles have evolved, just like the way our food evolves or anything else in art or culture evolves. And so I think personally that there's a great value in understanding the history and understanding these styles of wine within a context. But that's not to say that if you just think it tastes good, then just drink it and enjoy it. You you might not be a person like, you know what, I don't need context for my wine, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. But I, as a wine professional, as somebody who's dedicated their entire life to wine, I look at wine in context. But that doesn't mean other people have to.
2: So this is what I wonder, you know, in a political year where we're seeing this massive upheaval in this country because everybody's saying that the two parties are sort of out of step with what the general public wants. And I look at the wine shelves and I see year after year after year, more and more blends and a migration of the consumer to these hybrid, uh, we'll call them concoctions, if you like. It sort of says to me that the consumer is more focused on taste and less concerned about varietal characteristics. And maybe it's both ways because yes, I like a beautiful classic Cabernet Sauvignon. Frankly, Bordeaux is my favorite Family of wines. I love these classically beautiful wines, but I also love experiencing the creativity that takes place when barrels are married. And I think that's just opened up this wonderful door where taste is paramount.
1: Yeah, I mean, we are definitely in a world where there is not right and wrong. And that's what at the end of the day is exciting about wine is we can all take from it what we want. And as long as you find it delicious, that's the key. You know, you put 10 master sommeliers in a room and ask them about a wine and you get 11 opinions. And uh, <laughs> it, it's an individual pursuit. And we all think of it and look at it separately.
2: You know, I think there's a lot to be said for really understanding the wines and understanding the different families of wines. Having been now for the last few years, the owner of a wine bar, it's so important to be able to sit and talk to a visitor and try to understand what it is that they're tasting that they like so that I can steer them into a certain category of wines or varietals because I can take very good care of them that way. And the more that they understand about these varietals, the better chance they have of not wasting a bunch of money in a retailer buying wines that probably aren't going to satisfy their wants and desires. But at the same time, it works both ways. We're We're getting very experimental with wine and doing some really fun and exciting things but it i guess is important to understand the single varietal and what that's all about as well
1: so and it depends it really depends you know where you're drinking you think one of the great things about california wine is you have so much opportunity for experimentation wine evolved in europe to be a you know a very very distinct cultural product if you take a wine like a chardonnay to pop it has very specific rules every appellation has very specific rules that you can use these grapes you can't use these grapes this is how you have to grow them because they're protecting an 800 year old in that case Tradition. And in the United States, we don't have 800-year-old wine traditions, and so there is a lot more freedom for winemakers to innovate, and because we, we, we aren't necessarily tied to those traditions. So, th- you know, that's a good thing. But on the other side, we are developing those traditions, and so, for example, in an area like Napa Valley, nobody's going to rip up their Cabernet Sauvignon and plant some grape nobody's ever heard of, right? Because right. that has a value to it, and you're not, nobody's going to rip up a Cabernet that sells for $15,000 a tonne. But in so many other parts of California, you do have room for experimentation with grapes, with styles. And so that's, I think, one of the advantages we have in California. Luckily, you know, we live in a place where we have both options.
2: Okay, so the only thing I can conclude from this conversation is that the next time I see you, I'm going to bring
1: you a blend of coffee and wine. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. All right. I might ask for them separately.
2: Okay. September, California Wine Month, all month long. You can go to discovercaliforniawines.com. You know, vacation time is over, so this is a really good time to sneak out to California. And, you know, flights are good. Airfares are good. So come on down and enjoy that. You definitely want to go on to Netflix and look for Psalm Into the Bottle. And you know what? Check out the original Psalm movie and Psalm Into the Bottle, both very, very, very good movies. And if you're on a kick of watching wine movies, I just want to tell you that Bottle Shock is not accurate. So please don't get your history from that movie. <laughs> and then finally, if you want to learn more information about wine in general and get a great education with the assistance of Jeff Kruth, then you can go to guildsom.com And I'm going to do a little favor for you, Jeff. I'm going to put a link to guildsom.com on our website, GrapeEncounters.com. So there you Perfect. have it. Okay,
1: Jeff. Thanks so much for your time. Jeff, what a
2: pleasure.
0: Really appreciate having you on. Alright. You are listening to Grape Encounters Radio with David
3: Wilson. As summer fades and fall settles in, magic happens in wine countries around the globe. Vineyards laden with luscious fruit become the center of attention, and wine lovers from far and wide come to celebrate the long-awaited harvest. Every wine country has its own unique character and events to commemorate the season, but few places offer the diversity and sheer number of opportunities that await you on California's Central Coast. So if you want to be in the absolute center of it all, set your sights on a Tascadero unpretentious, inexpensive, and the truest expression of Americana, Atascadero is the perfect base camp for your fall wine adventure. Atascadero is the midpoint between Los Angeles and San Francisco, but during harvest, it might as well be the center of the universe. The wine world waits all year for harvest, but don't wait to book your California Central Coast wine adventure. Let Atascadero be your gracious host, and all you have to do is log on to visitatascadero.com. Words can be very confusing. When you're crazy, people say that you're nuts. But what if you're crazy about nuts. Well, that doesn't mean that you should be sent to the funny farm. It means that you should be sent to the farm of MM Organics, the producers of organic heirloom walnuts and walnut products that are so incomparably unique and delicious, other nuts will be reduced to wallflowers. Whoops! There we go with those crazy meanings of words again. After all, if being a wallflower means disappearing into the background, then why does being a walnut from MM Organics mean standing out from the rest? Confused? Well, you won't be when you discover the glorious deliciousness of walnut halves, baking pieces, fair trade chocolate covered walnuts, and other scrumptious walnut products from MM Organics. Learn more and order yours at mmorganics.com, where you'll also find our utterly irresistible two horse Portuguese dessert wine that everyone goes nuts for. Get crazy at mmorganics.com.
0: Every week David has the good fortune of enjoying wine with some pretty amazing people, but few things can compare to spending some quality time sipping with Sarah. Sarah Schneider, that is.
3: A bottle of red, a bottle of whites. Depends upon your
2: All right, back with Grape Encounters Radio and now my very favorite part of the show. I have to say it's my favorite because I get to collaborate with the darling of the wine world, Sarah Schneider. We created a segment just for her because she is so beloved in the wine world, and here we are.
4: Oh, David, that's so sweet of you to say. Do you want a it's, Kleenex to dab your I, eyes? I need some tissue. I got a
2: little choked up, aren't you? <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to get into to a subject today, Sarah, that I know that we have never talked about before. It's a question that I think you're going to find super interesting. Ready? Okay, hit me. The question is, what wine do you think is the safest for you?
4: Wow. Now,
2: let me explain the question because it's not about whether the wine has poisons in it or anything (laughs) like that. It goes like this. You go into a wine retailer, wherever you buy your wine, and we're talking varietals now. There's Cabernet, there's Chardonnay, there's Syrah, there's whatever, you know, Pinot. All of the varietals that you're familiar with and some that you're not. Which one, which varietal do you think that you could reliably purchase without knowing anything about the wine, and there's a better than good
4: chance it's going to taste good. Do you get that question? Uh, you know, nobody has ever asked me that question. Yeah. The, where are you safe on quality question? It's a fabulous question. And my mind, <laughs> I have to admit, I first and going through my decks in mentally and finding- Your varietal my, my, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah.
2: those grape cards in there. We should probably, <laughs> before we jump into which one is the safest, we should probably start with which ones aren't the well, safest. Well, that's what happened that's in my, my, that's what in my brain. Happened.
4: I was going through, ooh, not that, ooh, not that. And honestly, the first variety that popped up in the no category is Pinot Noir. And that's not to say there aren't f- just gorgeous versions of Pinot Noir out there, but it's so uneven. I think there's more bad Pinot Noir Than almost anything else. How long
2: have I been saying this? No. I have been saying that the reason that I am not a Pinot Noir advocate is because most of it is terrible. And most of it is terrible. And so that's why I'm always making jokes about not being a Pinot lover. It's not that I don't like Pinot Noir, it's just that good Pinot Noir is hard to come by. It
4: is hard to come by, especially at lower prices. At lower prices, it's very hard to come by. Yeah, it's not a safe wine. Yeah. I would have to add, I don't trust Chardonnay either. Even though I love good Chardonnay and especially certain styles of Chardonnay, just personal preference, but so many of them are too big and buttery and actually sweet that I feel like I'm in a minefield. If I choose a Chardonnay?
2: Well, it's become more of a minefield because 15 years ago, Chardonnays had gotten so big and buttery, and that's how they all were. And so there was a revolution against Chardonnay, and winemakers went to the other extreme of, you know, making stainless steel Chardonnays. And now it seems like we have a choice of three Chardonnays,
1: which are <laughs> right.
2: the low, medium, and high. No. You know, where oak and butter is concerned. Right. And you know, that makes it very interesting. I think in a good way because it gives you choices, but I almost think with Chardonnay, it should be rated one, two, and three. Not with one, two, or three (laughs) being better. It's just the butter scale. (laughs) To
4: know what you're getting. Yeah.
2: You know, maybe a little, how about this? Maybe just a little symbol of Mrs. Butterworth on it. Okay. (laughs) What a great idea. A Chardonnay in a Mrs. Butterworth's bottle. (laughs) Okay. I was going to say, I think the least forgiving of all wines just about is Cabernet. You know, there is so much terrible Cabernet out yeah. there. And I have to say this, I, there's nothing really in the world I love better than an awesome Napa Cab. I mean, there's nothing like yeah. it on the planet. Yeah. It's
4: pretty But terrific. having
2: said that, the word Napa on a bottle does not ensure goodness. Absolutely not. In yeah. fact, probably it ensures yeah. just the opposite. And that's because there's a lot, a lot of grapes out there that don't make the Cut and don't get into those grape bottles of Cabernet, but they're still from Napa, so they can still call it Napa Cabernet, which it is. Yeah, but they're no, cults. Right. They were the grapes that weren't that's, wanted by somebody else. The cut. They did not make the cut, but yeah. they get to be called Napa Cab, and you'll see them sometimes in a big discount store for $10. No. Right. You know what? Don't even buy a Napa Cab <laughs> for under $45 you know, $50, you're wasting your money. That's quite a
4: statement. Yeah? We might have to do a segment, where are the value Napa cabs?
2: Yeah, we might have to do that because that's... But I really, frankly, $45 is sort of my bottom line on a Napa cab. Uh, Chilean cabs, on the other no, hand... that's different. $30, $30, bucks, i will buy a, a heck of a nice wine. All right, Cabernets, for me, are uh, definitely stay away from the zone. Any other stayaways?
4: You know, I am a fan of Syrah, but... I feel like it's very, very uneven out there, depending on where it's grown, who's made it. And so I feel like I'm getting into a little bit of a crapshoot if I buy or order a Syrah whose producer I don't know. Okay. So What are the the big crapshoots, though? Zinfandel is a bit of a crapshoot when you're talking about alcohol levels. Yeah, for sure. But Zinfandel, at least, you can look at a Zinfandel and you can look
2: at where it's from and get a yeah. fairly good idea because yeah. it does come down to this. If you understand the sweet spots where price range is concerned, where the wine is from, this is where a little knowledge can go a long way. That's ways. true. That's true. You can narrow it down, and
4: you know you're going to get a profile. That's but there familiar. are some, but
2: there are some wines that, like I said, Napa cabs. I will never take a chance with that, and I will never, ever, ever, ever take a chance with cabs from any place other than Napa because then it gets worse. <laughs> Uh, Do you agree? There's a lot of generic cab out there. Okay, we're running out of time. So are you ready to reveal your safest
4: wine? I am ready. Okay, I can't wait. You want two? Can I get a white and a red? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. All right. We only put one white out on the table, and that was Chardonnay. But I have to say my go-to white is Sauvignon Blanc. I do know that there is a huge range of styles out there. Good choice. But as a sort of a trusted wine, you have acidity and you usually have good fruit from the West Coast. And if there's not actual sugar in it, you're going to get a pretty good wine.
2: Wow. You know, it's funny because I didn't think of Sauvignon Blanc, but I have to agree with you. But my white is a little different, and this might surprise you, Viognier. Really? I think Viognier is fairly safe. And the reason I say that is because Viognier can be a little, you know, on the sort of semi-sweet side, or it can be bone dry, but I like it both ways. And ah, and man. I just tend to not run into too many Viogniers that I absolutely hate. That's interesting. It doesn't happen too much. Okay. What's your red?
4: My red might surprise you because this is a wine that has been totally criticised. at certain times in the press. My go-to red is Merlot. Mine, too. Really?
2: Mine, too. Good God. (laughs) Good God. Absolutely no question about it. And here's why because the people who are making crappy Merlot got out of the business after Sideways. Yep. The only people who are really making any large amounts of Merlot are people who know how to make it. Merlot is a very trustworthy wine. Safe wines then, Sauvignon Blanc. Viognier. are you fairly
4: comfortable I with don't, that one? I'm a little bit iffy on that one. All right,
2: well, mm-hmm. you know, we'll have to agree to disagree. Yeah. But for sure, Merlot, that's yeah. it. That's going to do it for Sipping with Sarah. That's going to do it for Grieving encounters for today too. So go out and for goodness sakes stay in your safety zone nah heck no just go out and experiment
4: have a good time we'll see you next week